0: You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm David Manty, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing Podcast. With me this week, back from the road. Wait, were you back last week? Uh, Late, uh, late Thursday Okay, back on the podcast is Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry Every week we take the five most popular stories on our websites And discuss the implications they have on the industry going forward But before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use, even a simple thumbs up if you're watching us on YouTube. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily newsletter and make sure you get it delivered to your inbox first, and subscribe to us on YouTube at IEN Magazine so you can get a notification when we go live every Thursday. Jeff, how was your time on the road?
2: It was good. Very productive. Obviously good to be back. i um, grateful to Andy and to Ben for filling in. Mm-hmm. I just want to say, great guys, extremely talented, love having a beer with them, all that. But they're also very agreeable with <laughs> you too. I did notice that in listening to this. You kind of, you know, I think uh, I might change the tone. A little bit. We bully. Jumping back into the fray here.
0: We bully them aggressively, like before we start Uh, recording.
2: Well done. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of
0: fear behind that. But
1: I mean, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to those episodes, but I definitely interjected where I was like, "No, see, this is the point where Jeff would come in and say the exact opposite."
2: I did notice that. I did listen. (laughs) Did appreciate the reference to the Jeff facts. Oh yeah, or as I call them, facts. Yeah. So, just stuff. As
1: I call it, the truth. <laughs> Anna, how are you doing this week? Good. Very good, very good. Let's good, to re- ha-
0: good to have you back, Jeff. <laughs>
1: Let's get ready to battle the truth. The truth. Also kind of like a money pro wrestling name. All right. Well, before we get started, we have a word from our new sponsor, Adobe. Hi, I'm David Manti, and I want you to join me and John Burdett from Adobe to discuss practical tips, how to transform your digital sales in self-service. John, one thing that we're going to be talking about is how you can create these sales ironmen, augmented salespeople. Is this just a cheap ploy to tie in a Marvel tie? Or is this a real thing that people could use? This is a real thing. This is automating your sales and service uh, so that your salespeople can go out and sell even more with automation having their back and not competition for it. It's allowing them to do more with the less that they always have in terms of time and, and effort and energy. Very good. Plus then, they can go home and tell their kids that they're an Iron Man. That they're Iron Man. <laughs> Excellent. Well, very much looking forward to it. Make sure to register at the link below and join myself and John Burdett for practical tips, how to transform your digital sales and self-service. We'll see you there. And we're back. And before we jump into that first story, just know that changing customer expectations and increasing cost and competitive pressures are forcing industrial manufacturers to rethink how they engage with buyers to grow revenue, improve profitability, and gain operational efficiencies. John Burdett from Adobe and I recently sat down to talk about what industrial manufacturers should consider with their commerce initiatives and how they should tie into their digital customer experience. Click the link in the live chat to watch it now. It'll also be in the description. It is a good discussion, and we hope you get a chance to check it out. Also, thank you to everyone that joined us live for our hose discussion this week. That one was a banger. All right, our first story this week. Developer proposes $5 billion man-made moon in Dubai. Well, if you'd like to visit the moon instead of a rocket ship high in the air, you might only need a ticket to Dubai. Canadian entrepreneur Michael Henderson wants to build a 900-foot replica of the moon on top of a 10-story building in Dubai. Project Moon is funded by Moon World Resorts Incorporated. Henderson is the co-founder, and he is excited about the project, specifically... The brand recognition. Henderson says, we have the biggest brand in the world. Eight billion people know our brand. And we haven't even started yet. Because he's, he's talking about the moon. You guys get it? He's talking about the moon. The moon is the brand. He's going to launch another project called Earth. The scope of the project includes a destination resort inside the moon, a 4000-room hotel, an arena capable of hosting 10,000 people, most likely for a UFC event, and a lunar colony where guests could see what it what it's like to walk on the moon. Anna I bet you're just chomping at the bit to walk, To walk on the moon and visit this moon overseas.
0: I'm already exhausted. Uh, just like thinking about this project, I don't know, the line about 8 million people already know our brand. <laughs> As if this company has like sole rights to the moon's likeness. and just
1: <laughs> Did they buy likeness rights? And come on, when I read that line, it made me think like, okay, there have to be some. How many people don't know about the moon?
0: Well- True. And like, to be honest, do you think that the moon has like the real moon has a lawyer and trademark rights? Probably not. So you could probably the moon TM it right right away.
1: I mean, I bet there are just batches of lawyers on this already.
0: (laughs) (laughs) To me, the fact that people are trying to spin this project as science and progress uh, when it's little more than like a really overtly expensive tourist attraction seems like a little bit of a reach to me.
2: Mm hmm.
0: Um, Of more importance, I think, are maybe the barriers here. I think the most obvious one is the cost. A $5 billion fake the moon in a time period where the future of fossil fuels is in doubt and the UAE's um, GDP is heavily dependent on selling oil. Mm -hmm. That might be a factor. I don't know.
1: I mean, I think think there's still a little bit of a runway there in terms of the sick wealth.
0: I mean, maybe, but they already, you know, the article pointed to some major projects that had been scrapped during an economic downturn that was pretty recent, like only a decade ago. Um, Secondly, I think, you know, with interest rates being high, the economy looking a little bit murky, um, that uh, pushing past all that is, you know, one thing. But also, um, is it at all practical? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, like they talked about a similar project being scrapped in England because of light pollution and the pushback that they got from people who were living and working in the area. Fair enough, because this thing is supposed to glow all night.
1: Yeah, but in different uh, but shades to match the moon's you current can't cycle. not the moon. Yeah, yeah so not, sometimes it'll be darker because it'll I'm, just be the little thumbnail.
0: I'm not mad at real the moon. I have no <laughs> beefs with real the moon. I I think that if I live next door to Fake the Moon TM, I don't think I would <laughs> appreciate That's not their brand. The 24 <laughs> Fake the Moon TM. Fake the Moon
2: is not their brand. <laughs> yeah.
0: I don't think I would appreciate the glowing. Um I also think that from a practical standpoint like we're talking about putting a a casino in there, uh you know, gambling yeah. in this country is not even legal. Um I I think you're kind of left with not a lot unless people are really into this idea of a lunar colony, but have they like Um, you know, have they workshopped that at all? Like, are people saying like, you know, I would love to go to the moon, but I'm not going to be able to afford that. So something that is like, um, uh, an approximate, uh, version of the moon, some sort of a colony that I can walk through. Do do people want to do that? Uh,
1: I have a mild interest and I think that a lot of people would too. Yeah. I think so. Um, okay. But
0: there's all kinds of like simulated stuff out there museums and things like that like i don't know that i we've just been to. yeah like, but you're going to fly you're going to fly to dubai to walk through a fake moon me yeah no okay that's what i'm but asking
2: there are a lot of people who will Mm-hmm. Do you know how many Star Wars conventions there are in yeah, the given calendar year? To, I mean, this is a fascination for
1: a
0: lot of people. Well, but may, to that I,
1: point, they just killed that uh, $2,500 a night Star Wars hotel in Disney. So After I mean, like three maybe years, a, yeah. I mean, Maybe there's a limit.
0: It, there might be a limit. That's all I'm saying. And it seems like maybe a challenging build uh, just based on the moon-like shape of the fake Moon TM. <laughs> and so um, – it seems like this project could be you know maybe uh subject to some bloat along the way, so five billion maybe at the bottom. I don't know, it just doesn't seem like I'm not that excited about it, <laughs> it just doesn't seem like maybe it's that necessary, oh, but man. you know,
1: I just see myself if you come out with fake the moon t m like a channel on YouTube, yeah, that is just a rabbit hole I could dive well into
0: <laughs> about I
1: mean. There was faking the moon landing. There Mm -hmm. was the flat earth. Now the moon is fake. I am in. Yeah. Completely. Jeff. So the attraction of essentially putting Epcot on top of a giant building in Dubai. Again, I see it as a tourist, a potential tourist destination, but Anna has some really good points about a potential economic downturn really impacting big, large-scale projects like this.
2: Well, it has happened in the past, 100%. Um, during you know late 2000s, there was definitely a lot of unfinished projects in, in Dubai. A lot of those have come back because there has been a recovery. And while I'm not an expert on the economy of the UAE, um, it seems to be doing well. I mean, they're building more stuff. There is a lot of traffic. There's a ton of international traffic that goes through Dubai, either for tourist reasons or growing financial markets, all of those things. So as far as all of that goes, I think if a developer wants to build something, I'm all for it being more of an innovative, creative design than more square, tall buildings. The other thing, and I'll preface this by saying I have no delusions of this essentially being a $5 billion yurt, Okay, (laughs) but the the reality is spherical buildings are – from an energy perspective, actually more efficient mm-hmm. because of the way the air flows, the air circulates more effectively mm-hmm. than with having a square cornered traditional yeah. structure. Yeah. Okay. So, in that way, there are potential energy savings from this type of architecture. Again, I get it. They're building a resort. That's not what they're focused on here. Yeah. But it also, this type of design potentially can provide more space with less land mass. Mm-hmm. That's another advantage to this type of architecture. Now, I'm not saying that's the goal here, okay? (laughs) I get that. But when we talk about the thing that leads to the thing, if we can perfect these types of structures at this scale, then maybe we can be smarter when it comes to, I mean, we're running out of dirt, right? We hear that all the time. Real estate prices are through the roof. If we can find more efficient ways of constructing homes and dwellings and other buildings, that's something I think that could be, we could potentially benefit from in this type of situation.
0: So, wait, wait, I have a question though. How does it, how is it a smaller footprint? I don't understand that.
2: Because you get more square footage because of the space. It's not, you're not building square corners on everything. It's more open space. So you have more room to build in.
0: But isn't it like it's spreading out? It's out, sp- but it's. Spreading out over more land area?
2: No, it's taking up the same amount of land area, but you have more internal more space usable of the space.
0: More internal. usable space because you don't have corners.
1: Yeah. It's like one of the big benefits of using additive manufacturing to create like homes and new structures mm-hmm. is how you can change the space that is
2: traditional in like stick building.
0: So more usable, non-legal casino space.
2: Potentially but. fewer building materials okay, mm-hmm. for the same type of structure and same type of space. Again, not saying that's their goal. I'm saying if we can learn from these types of innovative projects – there is something down the line we can take away from it, potentially. Mm-hmm. And that would, be, that would be the takeaway here.
0: Don't you think the original moon should get to be the thing that leads to the thing, though? I mean, don't... don't he's he's had, you're all against interstellar travel. It has tens of
2: thousands of years, and it has done nothing <laughs> with its potential. <laughs> Time to step give aside, real moon. this guy break Sitting and let there, him like, take advantage of the situation.
0: Yeah, that's true. It's a little bit condescending, to be honest <laughs> with you. The moon? I mean, let's plus, be honest. Do you just
2: throw TM on the back of everything now and like it's yours? <laughs> yeah. Do you have to worry about this? I, I do. don't know
0: if I say it enough times that I automatically get the trademark. Yeah, and- no, I
1: think that we timestamp it and resubmit it and uh, then yep. it's yours.
0: It's like squatter's rights. You just <laughs> <laughs> plus, after a while. Plus, are you
2: saying you would not go to a concert at this new place in Vegas that has this same type of deal? No,
0: I would, but. Um, G Sphere. But uh, like I'm not going to specifically choose a location to only attend an event at the moon. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think I would, that's not going to like put me over the edge and be like, I need to buy a plane ticket here to go. I mean, so maybe if it's there, I would see it, but I don't know. It's not like, I'm not like. If it was called the...
2: something other than the moon, would you feel differently?
0: Uh, what else would it be called? The well, the one in basketball. Vegas is
2: called the MSG sphere. And it's the same type of construction. Okay. Is that better?
0: I don't know. Uh, I would have to think about that. Can I trademark it?
2: It, it's already been trademarked. This the sphere, t, the sphere TM. Yeah, if you can. I'm sure there's some legal wrangling you can figure out there. Well, just throw I, a TM on it. That seems to be working a so a far. It. Yeah, I do like put
1: to see it. I like to see all the innovative structures that are coming out. I like it when people take chances and see how there could be new uses of materials in uh, livable spaces. It makes me think of all the kind of crazy things that you can find on Airbnb. Mm-hmm. How you can like, and you tell you can like live inside a giant potato. You know, there's an actual shoe. And I mean, this is something that if it was a low cost yurt, you know, hipsters would be clamoring for and it would be booked out for three years. I think that because it's also a five billion dollar project on top of a superstructure in a land known for sick oil wealth. Maybe that's why, you know, there's a little bit more blowback. But I think that if this was just kind of a, a cool project sitting on a regular piece of land that you could get for a few nights at a reasonable rate, I mean, it wouldn't be
0: reasonable, right? Well, I don't know.
1: I guess I have no idea. And I mean, Jeff, to your point, like, yeah, in the event that my kids, like, when my kids are grown and disposable income re enters my life, like, uh, I could definitely see, like, going to a special event that was held at a lunar colony on top of a building. But I mean, until then, I'm gonna have to settle for, like, the rural Wisconsin yurt on a creek. <laughs> <laughs> what, what amenities does it have? It comes with a canoe leaned up against the back. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah,
0: what a waste of your moon awareness.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, our next hot-button story of this week is World's Largest Airplane Successfully Releases Hypersonic Test Vehicle. Stratolaunch wants to advance high-speed technology through innovative design, innovative manufacturing, and innovative operation of world-class aerospace vehicles. The whole idea is to launch payloads from the sky rather than the ground. Well, this week, the company announced that it successfully completed a test of the Talon A separation test vehicle, the TA-0, if you will, on May 13th. The flight was the 11th for the company's Rock launch platform, which is called the world's largest airplane. The flight lasted four hours and eight minutes, during which the team performed risk reduction by demonstrating the Talon A launch system can cleanly and safely separate hypersonic vehicles from the ROC's center wing pylon. With this landmark test complete, the team will progress toward its first hypersonic flight of the TA-1 expendable testbed in late summer of 2023. Jeff, I was surprised that this story reached the top five, and it comes just a few weeks after we saw the epic failure of Virgin Orbit just... Uh, go under, and you know this company also has flirted with uh, being insolvent as well in the past. So um, I think this is kind of a very, very motive like a, not motivational. It's, it's an interesting success story well,
2: so it, far. Yeah, and I think Anna's going to get into more of the history of the company. It is. It's intriguing going all the way back to to um, so Paul Allen who was mm-hmm. involved in, in, in the founding and stuff. What interests me here is the application. Because unless I've missed something, I don't think Stratosphere has really come out and said, this is what we're going to use this for. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason that these stories get so much attention is because of the hypersonic dynamic, because we hear so much about it from a weaponization perspective. Um, here, I think the initial perspective was using it for space launching, right? We, right. It's going to be more cost effective to basically get an airplane up and going and then launch vehicles from there. Yeah or satellites yeah Yeah, potentially and i mean strata launch at one point was working with spacex so i mean there is that potential um i still think about how intriguing this could be for solving a lot of supply chain issues in terms of the hypersonic delivery of supplies either for military applications or for human you know aid basically Mm -hmm. you know in times of disaster or famine or whatever so the technology has a lot of different applications You just wonder where it's going to end up going. They're already working with Space Force here. You can see they had a big relationship. I think it was Brandenburg, um, their base there, Mm -hmm. um, with with a lot of these test flights and things like that. Is it going to go a military route? Because that seems to be where a lot of the pressure is, especially right now. And the money. Um, Russia has has reportedly been using hypersonic missiles over against Ukraine um, with limited success. China is potentially really leading the way in terms of hypersonic missile development. So it'll be see where... It'll be interesting to see where this goes, and really the the history of this technology, it's been around for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. Really, the first hypersonic missile. I was doing a little bit of research. It was kind of interesting. It was actually based off of V two rocket technology, which goes back to World War II. Wow! Mm-hmm. So that's where the origins are. Again, it'll be interesting to see where we take this and where we allow it to go. Yeah, like you said, a lot of money in military R and D right now, especially with this type of System and this technology is so hot and under so much scrutiny right now mm-hmm. from a national defense perspective. And it's uh
1: Vandenberg
2: Air Force Base, my bad. Uh, I mean, it was close, close. Um,
1: Anna, what an, an interesting development just happened today, I believe. Um, where Stratolaunch just bought acquired some of the assets of Virgin Orbit. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think, uh? Why did Virgin Orbit fail and Stratolaunch, you know, pr- continues on?
0: Well, there's a lot to um, unpack there, and I think there's just a lot of um, of luck, also. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, yeah. uh, timing. You know, yeah, timing. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, like this was a company that almost didn't make it. I think that makes it an interesting story, um, and I do want to talk about that. Before we do, I think it's important to also get back to this issue with. <clears throat> With Virgin Orbit. So, yeah, Strata Launch, it's been confirmed, has bought Virgin Orbit's aircraft assets at auction. According to a few reports, they bought the uh, Virgin's Cosmic Girl aircraft Mm -hmm. and related assets uh, for $17 million. The craft is a modified uh, Boeing 747, which was reportedly selected due to its carrying capacity, Mm -hmm. um, that was custom-built for Virgin Orbit. Uh, The idea here is that Strata Launch would use this as a space launch platform, though um, <clears throat> Virgin Orbit was unable to do so successfully, though I believe that had more to do with their rockets than and, than the plane. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, because uh, isn't Stratolaunch talking about putting their rock launch platform onto Cosmic Girl?
0: Yes, exactly. So um, hopefully they have more success with that. It seems likely, I think, based on the company's several successful tests that they already have um, under their belt, they have some sophisticated partnerships on hypersonics that, you know, um, they have that contract with the U.S. Air Force test lab, as you alluded to. Um, and they recovered from the death of Paul Allen, which almost sunk that company. He was like their chief investor. He died in 2018. They almost uh, went under in 2019. Um, and then Cerberus Capital Management, who specializes in distress companies, kind of swooped in, and then they hit the ground running again, like pretty hard, which is pretty remarkable when you consider that um, Strata Launch had effectively ceased operations, laid everybody off, Mm -hmm. and it was like a hot second where it did not look good. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, Cerberus considered taking Virgin Orbit private um, when that company was struggling, but it looks like they decided not to ultimately put all their eggs in the strata launch basket. And I think waiting out actually paid off for them because they were able to obtain these assets for a pretty good price that was reportedly um, gained through quote, hard fought negotiations. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, worked out well for strata launch. I think this will be a nice asset for them to have. And then not to mention just having another competitor out of the way. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. pretty important. So
1: I mean, hard fought negotiations. First of all, I think it would be a, very uh very fun to be at the table for the Virgin Orbit bankruptcy auction. But I mean look <laughs> like, what is the what's the argument from people trying to get a higher price? Like, hey, if you don't pay more, we sell it for scrap? Like I mean strata launch is You know, basically, hey, it's us or nobody else. I'm assuming.
0: I guess, but to be honest, like they they announced this auction just a couple weeks ago, and they sold all their stuff like right away. Yeah. Um, to people like you know, right down the road, like Rocket Lab had bought their facility, they're like a mile away. There's so many people in that space that could use that stuff, and I think they're thinking, well, I might as well get it at a, a bargain bin rate. Yeah. So people were jumping on that stuff. I don't know if there would be another person or a company lined up to buy that massive plane for yeah. that amount of money. Yeah. But fair point, you know, like well, well, they definitely have more leverage. I think in that scenario than Virgin orbit. Well,
1: it's just so, it's so possible that what was the story we did? Was it Elvis's plane that just kind of sat there for 40 years yeah. and they finally sold? Right. Like there was a good chance that cosmic girl just kind of hung out in a hangar until someone found it again. And they're like, Oh, maybe we could turn it into an RV. Yeah. Um, a really interesting part of that, uh, Cerberus story is that you're right. Everybody was laid off. And in late 2019, they reacquired staff. Uh huh. That's crazy to so me. So crazy. Just yeah. like, imagine being laid off cause your company goes under. And there are so many times that people are looking for a lifeline and it just never comes through. Mm-hmm. And in this one very interesting example, it does. Um, I really encourage people to look at the photos of this payload taking off from the aircraft as well, because it just gives you a better sense of the scale. And sometimes you can see the photos with people standing, uh, standing by it. And it's incredible. It's like the wingspan is what uh, wider than a football field. But to see these hypersonic payloads basically looking like, you know, a little pebble falling from my craft. You're just like, no, that's a pretty sophisticated hypersonic aircraft. Um, Dr. Zachary Creever, who is the CEO and president for strata launch said, we now stand at the precipice of achieving hypersonic flight. Like, I mean, you're at the precipice, but you achieved it. You you did it. Mm -hmm. You did it. Let's see where it goes from there. um, well, they just uh, there was
2: just the detachment. Yeah, the actual hypersonic oh, flight true. comes here at the end of the summer. So,
1: so. it is. I guess it is. Yes, you are right. It's exactly the precipice. You are on Zach's side now, huh? <laughs> Jeff and yep. Jeff and Doctor Zach, the truth.
2: I am just just here to help, David.
1: Thank you for helping, Jeff. <laughs> All
2: right, our
1: next most popular story: one hundred year old Ling- Lingato factory inspires latest Fiat design. On May 23, 1923, the Lingato production facility in Turin opened its doors. When it opened, it was the largest auto production plant in the world, and its unique shape featured five floors surrounded by windows. Each floor was used for a different segment of the production process raw materials at the bottom, and a finished product at the top. The Lingato also featured a 1.5-kilometer test track and a flat rooftop that was featured in the 1969 version of the movie The Italian Job. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. Well, Fiat is marking the 100th anniversary of the building by using it as a design marker for future vehicles. According to Olivier Francois, Fiat CEO, the Lingato, which still serves as Fiat's headquarters, will inspire new design elements on 2024 model year Fiats. For example, the former test track, now used as a rooftop garden, will inspire interior shapes. So, Anna, more ovals.
0: Lots of ovals. Lots of ovals. Yep. Lots of windows, they also said, mm-hmm. which is okay. It's a car. Yeah. <laughs> it's inspired
1: by our building that's unique because of windows and ovals. So, it's going to have windows and ovals.
0: Yeah. <laughs> She's still
1: mad at the
2: moon.
0: Just... Jeff X, TM. Yeah. I know. I am. Uh, I. I really enjoyed this um story because it was one of those where when I was writing it I knew that no one was going to view it but I was wrong. People <laughs> did view it so that was exciting. Uh and I knew absolutely nothing about this factory uh which is such like has such a rich history and is very interesting um not just for Fiat but also the history for automotive in general. So you know, I think it's not exactly unusual for a company to try to make a big splash about a new design marker or a theme, right? For how they will apply a new look and feel to their vehicles. It's just like an easy fluff piece for PR, the PR department. I don't know that the public at large is like, "Whoa, it's very like design oriented and yeah. um but uh this this facility was so cutting edge for its time that you can see why the Fiat designers would actually be inspired by it. I don't think they're trying to shoehorn this necessarily i think it actually makes sense because it's a cool building um as you mentioned it had five floors the production process basically started on the ground floor and worked upward um which is something you do not see at all today mm-hmm. uh lingato had like an access ramp inside so it was like a helix design so that the um vehicles would actually move upwards like <laughs> that is cool that I don't is know. very cool yeah so, 80 different models of car were produced there in its lifetime. The factory operated for almost 60 years before it was determined to be obsolete. Um, but instead of being left to dereliction, Lingato was restored um, into a modern complex that's kind of started in the 1980s. Um, as you mentioned, Fiat's headquarters are there, but it also features um, a multi purpose complex with hotels, retail. There's a conference center there, um, Europe's largest hanging garden. Uh, off of the roof which is so cool mm-hmm. um for me like what is the most striking about visiting europe is just how many old beautiful buildings there are still around being maintained restored repurposed or whatever you can see that history on display there mm-hmm. in america we do a lot of tearing down and starting over <laughs> yeah and obviously we're not as old as europe so i, I get that like those cities are very old but I, and I know it makes financial sense a lot of the time to just tear it down and start over Uh, but I think it certainly leaves something lacking in aesthetics. So I really enjoyed seeing this, how it's being put to use today, how it operated then, and the design stuff, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The design stuff is very cool. I sometimes question, because we see automakers do this a lot, they try and pinpoint a particular part or um, artifact from their history Mm -hmm. and then use that in a splashy new launch. We saw that with the pony concept. And I don't think this one is just going for nostalgia and um, trying to roll people in that way. I don't know. I think that it's, I like it when a company embraces its rich legacy, kind of brings it to the foreground again in design. And you're right. It does, I mean, juxtaposed to how we do it in America, Mm -hmm. where if we don't tear it down to rebuild on top of it, we let it just crumble to the (laughs) ground. I mean, Jeff, we look at... You know there are entire sections of Detroit that are just not even
2: livable anymore because it's like that's that pa- that time is past. No, the first thing I did think of in, l- in looking at this story was the Detroit Packard plant mm-hmm. that we've covered and how that just it was so massive and just left to. Now they're just basically they have to tear it down. It's become just a blight blight of the city, and there's a lot of environmental issues and everything there. So definite contrast there. Now, I think the design elements are actually a little bit more than just marketing lingo. I'm going to kind of circle back to that. I think there is a real prominent connection that they're going to be able to make with some new products that they're rolling out here. Fiat, to me, is a really interesting company because it's somebody here in the U.S. we don't really pay attention to. Mm -hmm. I mean, sales here in the U.S. are in the thousands lately, over the last six or seven years. And this is after a period where they were actually doing okay. When you looked at the early 2010s, Fiat did have decent sales numbers here in the U.S. Minimal compared to their global sales, but still they had a bit of a presence. But when you look at how things have changed from people looking at fuel-efficient cars to SUVs and trucks, Fiat just did not have a place in that market. Mm -hmm. Now, they're still number one in Italy. They're number one, oddly enough, in Brazil. Oh. Okay. Number one vehicle in both of those places and like dominant. Like <laughs> just, they are the vehicle. So it's interesting. So there's obviously a lot of positive takeaways there. Stellantis, when they bought Fiat or when that was brought into the fold with Fiat, that's when everything in the US started kind of going downhill. But last fall, they said they're going to be releasing the 500E in 2024 to the North American market. Now, when you look at an electric vehicle and all the things there where it's seen as a little bit more of a I guess you could say just more of a practical mode of transportation. Yeah, That's where this could really come into play. And when they start incorporating some of these design elements with the circular sort of approach and a more smoother interior design, I could see that being a real marketing hook for an electric vehicle. When you look at an interior that is more high tech, more user focused, more sleek designs, we we're talking about getting rid of a lot of the traditional lines that you see inside of an interior on a traditional vehicle with the vents and with the controls and all that more flat screens and things like that and if you look at aerial views of that facility and all the windows you could definitely tell a great marketing story there in talking about the tradition of fiat who again the american auto buyer knows so little about and yeah. has not paid attention to but if you've got a car with a proven track record that can be reliable and that there were some reliability issues in the past but then tie all this together I think it could be a really cool story. So I think this is a little bit more than just marketing speak. I think this actually does have a legit design engineering element that they're going to bring to this new 500E next year. I think it all depends on the price point because Fiat
1: did sort of have a moment in the sun in the U.S. And I don't know, was it? do you think it was entirely tied to the Italian Job Reboot? Like the Italian job reboot came out. Everyone wanted a Fiat. And then, you know, they were out there for a little bit and they kind of just went away. Like I know that we uh, flirted with it for a minute. It was, you know, it's one of those cars that has always wanted. But when we looked at it, when you compare it to every other automobile, it just, it's not cost competitive at all. Like you're buying it because you want the Fiat and that just wasn't enough to put us over. Well, a
2: lot over. of that is because has resulted of le- few- fewer sales. So it becomes more expensive to maintain, buy, yeah. source, all of that kind of stuff. So if that infrastructure comes back under the Stellanus umbrella and they really push it, a lot of those price point issues will come down because in those other markets, one of the key selling points is price. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a less expensive option.
1: When they're selling this, do they need to keep the test track and the Lingato production facility? Does that need to be at the foreground of the story? Just because when they're, when you look at some of the interior design elements of this car, you could also think that it was strongly inspired by like gel caps. <laughs> you know, like I mean to me when I was just looking at some of the footage, I'm like, that kind of all looks like medicine. <laughs> so I don't I don't know. I like uh I mean I get it how uh all the sharp edges are rounding right now, but I think that maybe it's it benefits them by keeping the story along. Uh you know, sometimes a story helps sell a car.
0: Oh, of course it does.
1: Um again, reiterating that it's a great example of the public and company embracing and preserving and then growing its legacy. I mean, and they're not all the Detroit Packard plants in the US. Uh, one place that I've always wanted to go to um, was the Ford, it's the Ford Paquette Avenue plant in Detroit. It's the birthplace of the Model T, and it's now used to celebrate Detroit's automotive heritage and spirit of innovation. They have a bunch of legacy equipment there. Uh, Kids can get in different versions of models, Well, and adults can get in different versions of Model Ts. And so there are some examples of it in the U.S. working. Unfortunately, I think when you think of a manufacturing legacy in the U.S. and old buildings, you think of, you know, the places that you broke into as as an adolescent. Right, yeah. All right. Well, our next most popular story this week, Tesla bot can walk, navigate, and pick up items. Tesla recently unveiled new footage of the company's humanoid Tesla bots, and it just went so much better than the reveal at Tesla's AI day in September last year. Also known as Optimus, robot prototypes These robot prototypes put on quite a show. For example, three of the humanoids were shown walking forward without stumbling, which is a vast improvement from the bumbling stumbling bots from last year. Optimus is also learning to navigate and memorize its surroundings with software developed for Tesla's autopilot systems. Tesla's R&D department is also working on making the Tesla bots capable of jumping with extreme landing sensitivity. In the demo, a leg jumped and landed on an egg. Without breaking it. And again, it was just kind of like a jumping leg, but still it landed on an egg without shattering it. The company also demoed human trained AI with workers performing tasks in motion tracking suits and head mounted cameras to teach the robots how to pick up items on a table and place them in a box. Tesla's long term goal for Optimus involves performing unsafe, repetitive, or tedious tasks. CEO Elon Musk says production could begin this year. Production might begin this year, Jeff, but I don't know that we see Optimus in a factory that
2: quickly. Nowhere close. Okay. This is not an industrial robot. This is a humanoid robot. I don't really understand why he even rolled this out at this particular event. If you're looking at this mechanism, this creation, this piece of robotics being used to actually make something in an auto facility, you are way off. I, I just don't see how this works. I understand it's great in terms of how it's actually teaching the robot how to potentially com- uh, perform assembly operations, but even watching it do that, there's no way there's any efficiency gained here. Plus, did you see the way it was moving? I know you said it was a great improvement over last time. Yeah. Sure, cuz it didn't fall down. Yeah. But it's still super creepy. Yeah. Oh it's not fast. It looks like somebody on their tippy toes sneaking up on you to do something weird. It yeah. does. It looks For- like
0: the thriller video. Yeah, oh, is, you're right. That's a good point.
2: It is extremely unnerving, uncomfortable. Nobody is going to want this in their facility. And if I'm an investor in Tesla, I'm going, build more cars, man. What are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't I don't get it. When you look at industrial robotics, this doesn't check any of the boxes. I don't see how this makes your operation better. If he wants to play with this type of stuff, why in the world is he putting it under Tesla? That's what I don't understand. Yeah. Now look, Elon Musk is a lot smarter than me. And we've gone up and down in terms of things that he's done great and things that he's we just don't get what he's doing here. This one definitely falls under the head-scratching mode for me yeah. because it just – I don't see where this is going. It seems so far off. This is at least, I would think, a year to 18 months before you should even show anybody what you're doing. Yeah, I don't know why he's so excited about this. I mean, you're right
1: because it does stand to reason that Tesla should have their own essentially like a skunk works where they could have these – futuristic R&D developments that might be a better fit. Um, but I don't know. I See, I think the other way when it comes to industrial applications, I could see this doing simple assembly tasks. I could see these robots being used for, you know, uh, palletizing or other warehouse activities. You know, not, not exactly uh, manufacturing assembly like uh, mission critical assembly, but I see it could like take over some tasks that are otherwise, as he says, tedious. I see that there's a spot there, but I think what Anna's going to talk about is how there's kind of already a robot for that spot of the market. And I mean, the only difference here is that this cobot has legs and instead of being
2: on an AGV. Well, I want to know what Elon Musk refers to as tedious and repetitive, because he's described eating and sleeping as this way. So... I want somebody else to, to set up those parameters. Grocery shopping, he hates yeah. that yeah. He's
0: said that before It's yeah. going to
1: be present for his family um, well, and-
0: <laughs> <laughs> Too tedious
1: oh. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but Anna, getting to the robotic side of this Yeah, Cobots do perform a lot of these tasks, but isn't there an opportunity there where I mean, I don't see why, it doesn't need to be humanoid but making it more mobile and capable of performing multiple tasks there's a value there
0: <laughs> um, I don't know, I hate to do this, but I'm agreeing with Jeff like largely. Oh, on it's this only one. because and, he's
1: back this week. No. <laughs> uh,
0: to me, I see this as same. I, just because you can do it doesn't mean that you should. And that you know really to me, it's because Tesla is an auto company. This is not their core competency. I will acknowledge, of course, that there is so much crossover uh, these days between auto and electronic systems and that Tesla, specifically has a lot of development taking place around automation. I realize that this applies, but at the same time, it just feels like an adjacent effort. (laughs) Um, The objective of which, as you said, is to make the factories more efficient. But this technology, as it applies to many factory use cases, already exists. And Even if the existing cobot tech on the market, to your point, doesn't exactly fit, don't you think that they're probably light years ahead of what you're doing at Tesla in terms of both function and safety? Um, Because there wasn't even a prototype in 2021. It was a joke, more Mm. or less, right?
1: It was. It was a man in a suit. It was a joke.
0: Right. And now we're to believe that Tesla could begin production on it this year. Even if that was close to true, would you want that product? Um, We know that Tesla has been willing to test autopilot on the general public despite concerns from regulators and consumers that it's not ready for that and it's a safety risk Um, you know he would potentially prove these out in a live factory environment and I just don't think that that's safe for anyone involved Um, I just don't I think he's like out of his lane a little bit on this and I just don't get it Um, I, I would I would also add that, you know, a productive and effective cobot is very far from what we're seeing in this video, as Jeff said, you know, um, that most of the footage is just the the walking, the creepy walking, um, jumping on an egg and landing very lightly is not a tedious industrial task. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm not even sure what they're trying to do with that. But I just I guess there's just so much testing to be done here. And I just don't see the point of it. I don't see mm-hmm. the point of starting from scratch. If you need a robot that bad within your facility, go team up with one of the, you know, hundreds of very capable automation companies that are already like two-thirds of the way there and then make it work for your application. This doesn't make sense.
2: Well, that's the thing. Don't you think if he approached somebody like Fanuc and said, hey, I really want to develop some robotics, they'd be all over this. For sure. I mean, maybe, but
1: I see this more uh, some of the stuff that we've seen come out of DARPA. Um, with the robots that they've had in terms of palletizing stuff like that, um, but I I don't know. I think part of it also is that showing the failures throughout his development process helps Musk connect and endear himself and his brands to fans. I do. I think for every Jeff and Anna, there are two other people out there that are just like. Okay, he's but this was do- at a
2: stockholder meeting. Yeah, but I mean, do you think there's when you're talking about stockholders? Are they fans, or do they want to see return? I but I think that you know there is a real
1: potential. I mean, we have a huge talent shortage skills gap where if he can prove that these humanoids could even fill some roles, like, and even take a piece of the robotics market. I think there's real value there. I mean, and I mean, maybe stockholders feel this uh, differently, but I understand why he's going after it. Also because of um, the potential tie in with AI. Um, Now, I want to see if, when, and how generative AI is going to be incorporated into these robots because Musk has come out as kind of like, uh, at first he was an advocate for AI. He was on OpenAI's board, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then once OpenAI went into Microsoft and he was kind of pushed out, then he was uh, completely against it. But if you could see how generative AI could be incorporated into these robots to teach them uh, how to be more effective, I think they could, do a light year uh, pass over Cobots.
2: Okay, but why is he hung up on the humanoid element?
0: Because he wants to vertically integrate his labor because he has so much resentment for actual humans. That's, yeah. I do believe that. Yeah. No, You
2: you can't argue it. Yeah.
1: really, I mean. Because it's so much easier to micromanage a humanoid robot on the shop floor. And actually, I think his ideal, his ideal factory is him and his engineers sleeping on the floor while humanoid robots build cars ideal scenario Mm -hmm. um i also you know i think that because of the embarrassing failures at the ai demo last year you know i almost find myself rooting for optimus i i I, i'm excited by the progress and it also just reinforces how musk can be good as a salesman and a showman which isn't always bad right sometimes goes way bad sometimes goes way bad but um you know to go from that laughing stock failure um less than a year ago to this i don't know
2: um i think there's some good there you just can't wait to bow down to the robotic overlord can you no you're just I, you're getting way out ahead of it i, right I now. like uh legitimately terrified
1: of it just seeing how quickly generative ai has come aboard and what we are what we are doing with robotics once we combine that legitimate fear over that and uh hoping that at least people just uh adhere to Asimov's three laws of robotics knowing that they won't and i mean I mean uh sci fi
2: aside, like legitimate um replacement of humans. You you should have been at the conferences I was at then. So yeah. because they're much more under like AI is gonna be important, but human presence is gonna be more important with the more AI we develop. So sure. you and Musk can bow down to your robots and No, we don't But like, we're
1: gonna live in the real world. I don't I don't think it's bowing down to it. I think it's realizing the untapped potential of it still and just whether or not it's going to be reined in because yeah right now it's you know uh sap like he, he
2: was he was one of the guys who signed that letter saying let's slow down ai I mean, yeah that's like uh i mean of course he's gonna do that
1: like uh especially given a the time. complex salesperson he sells against himself
2: and then for his stuff at the same time no it's, that's incredible
1: that's his way of being like no see i know the dangers that ai holds and i would never Never let that happen to my humanoid robots. And then whoopsie daisy, I didn't see that coming. Just didn't see it coming. Come on man. He's Lex Luthor, man. He's not Iron Man. All right. <laughs> Our most popular story this week. Ford says it will stop competing in overserved markets. The days of Ford being all things to all people are over. And that's according to Ford CEO Jim Farley, who says the company won't compete in overserved markets and plans to place big bets on connected vehicles and digital services. He says the company has been, quote, stuck in a box with little profit and weak growth. Ford's focus will be software and services and iconic, see also higher margin, vehicles like pickup trucks, large SUVs, commercial vehicles, and next-gen EVs. The company is getting leaner and meaner. For example, the new F-150 coming out this year is going to have 2,400 less parts on the bill of materials. Anna Farley hopes that focusing on software services and these iconic products with tailored ownership experiences will make the company less vulnerable to economic unrest. Is that just to make shareholders more comfortable with their current economic unrest.
0: Well, of course, all of this comes down to pandering to shareholders. But also, I think the objective is a good one. Trying to eliminate complexity can net you benefits from so many areas in automotive. Uh, it speeds up production. It reduces service and repair challenges. In many cases, it can reduce your carrying costs significantly if you can cull the number of parts you need to have on hand. Uh, Ford saying that it reduced uh, by 2400, Um, parts from the bill of materials for the F-150 is a very good demonstration of that. Uh, One component of Ford's new strategy that I think was a little bit less publicized is that the company says that it's going to scale back uh, future investments in China. Mm. Um, After several years of struggling to connect with the Chinese buyer, Ford is basically addressing their lackluster sales uh, by saying that China is still important uh, to us, but we have to focus on higher growth regions. Uh, So Ford has already introduced some new models that are specifically designed for China. Um, They have a joint venture in China called Chang'an Ford, um, which only held 1% of all Chinese light vehicle sales in 2022, which was a decline from 4% market share in 2016. So it's not going well. Um, They took like a pretty big loss uh 572 million last year in China alone. So going forward Farley said that it will be a lower investment leaner much more focused business in China. I don't know if um other automakers are considering this market uh which is the largest current market for EVs as being overserved. But I do think this is a good move for Ford nonetheless and it also allows the company to really focus on scaling to the U S market and then also taking advantage of those tax credits but they're really making a concerted effort to make sure that they're building components here. So the buyers can have that financial incentive to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to touch on his point around, uh, uniquely tailored ownership experience yeah, and a focus on service (laughs) and wonder if you guys also took that to mean Ford will be nickeling and diming its customers with features as a service
1: charging to put the windows up
0: yeah my guess is yes I mean like obviously if this is taking off as a model for revenue amongst their competitors they're not going to leave that money on the table right so even if it means charging you to use your window wipers that's what uh, we have to look forward to
1: I see automotive and Jeff I'm sure you'll disagree with me, but I see automotive almost becoming more like televisions and consumer electronics where essentially they're almost giving away the television because of how they're going to charge you on services. They're going to sell your data and they're going to monetize you after you're in the vehicle. At least you're not paranoid. I'm not paranoid. It doesn't matter. Once I get iced by the by Optimus, once he's rolled out, it'll be fine. Did you
2: have your jump to conclusions map out when you were? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> putting this together? No, we have that at home. It's packed away. Nice. Ready for the next house. Excellent. Um, you know, it's interesting when this, when I first read, read all this for, well, getting back to your question about automotive, I don't think it's going to go that far. There's, there's you, the writing is on the wall. We can see all these services that are coming on as add on charges and in potential, um, revenue channels for these automakers and they're going to pursue it. How successful they are in terms of their forecasting, that's what's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm not as optimistic as you are in terms of how successful that's going to be. Okay? I don't think – oh, yeah. No, I no. don't – yeah. It's not I, optimism. It's <laughs> or not, how you're worried about yeah. – I don't. Th- I think it's going to be diminished in the long term because I don't think it's going to turn out the oh, way they want because it Because of consumer buy-in. Right. Yeah. I, I just don't see it becoming as lucrative as they would want it to or think it can become. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know that you guys feel like it's going to be forced upon us and we're going to have to pay and, and all this. I think there's going to be a lot of backlash. I, don't, I just don't see it – I see there's going to be some things that, as we get more advanced in terms of wireless technology and software over the air upgrades and things like that, yes. But again, I think it's going to be more in the middle as opposed to this savior, if you will, for, for the OEs. Um, when I first saw his comments, or I first saw the headline, first thing I thought of was actually GE. Remember when GE, after I'm out left, they got rid of all of those businesses that they basically said, yeah. this is not core to what we do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're getting rid of them that opened up a lot of opportunities to other smaller companies. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. He other than the China stuff which I didn't see, that's really interesting. He didn't really identify anything else. The first thing that came to my mind was Lincoln. Mm. Are they finally going to cut that loose? Mm. Because you're looking at luxury SUVs and CUVs basically. That's yeah. what Lincoln is right now. No electric models, kind of a dated brand name, you know? I mean, is there is that something they're going to look to get away from? Um, Are there other places in Asia? You mentioned China. They've also got joint ventures in Thailand and other places throughout Asia. Is that going to be something they do? So it'll be interesting to see how this actually plays out and if it opens up opportunities for other players. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of this, I think it may have just been pandering to the crowd a little bit. When you are transparent, I give him a lot of credit for this because one of the things they covered was they are, he feels they're something like $7 billion. They have $7 billion more in costs than their next closest competitor mm-hmm. or their excess costs or whatever. So obviously when you when you throw that number out there, it's got to be more than just reassuring to say, we see it. <laughs> now you got to say we're yeah. going to do something about yeah. it. Right, yeah. You've also got their E division, which is losing $3 billion this year. Mm-hmm. That's what he is forecasting. So you're, if you're 40, you're in this awkward spot where you can't go all the way to E because you've still got a lot of money that you need to get out of your traditional gas engine powered business, but that is the future. So in the meantime you're going to take some losses and you need to supplement those losses with some wins in other places or at least keep your shareholders happy in mm-hmm. the meantime. When automakers do talk about services and, and we were we just kind of hammered that but that does make me nervous cuz I just don't think it's going to be this pot of gold at the end no, of the rainbow that they think it's going to be.
1: It'll be I mean it'll be the same arc in my opinion as all the content channels that we subscribe to where right now there is an oversaturation of subscription for content channels. And now we're seeing a pullback and a contraction as people just realize they don't need that yeah. much content. That's no, a good analogy. And yeah. so I think the uh, you know, it'll be interesting because cars will come out, maybe they'll be less expensive, and probably for very low price points, you'll be able to subscribe to some of these um various features in your car. Some you'll be angry about that, like, you know, when you want navigation or something. But I think that initially there's going to be excitement and buy-in. And then eventually people are going to realize they don't need that you know, and they're going to lose those revenue streams and kind of wind up scrambling like we see a lot of people right now. Um, Farley promises that Ford is competing differently and placing, quote, big bets in its three customer-centered business segments. So that's Ford Blue, which are the iconic gas-powered and hybrid vehicles, the F-150s, Ranger trucks, Bronco SUVs. Ford Model E, which it just, anytime the company mentions Ford Model E, the next word is always startup a startup within Ford. That's their way of being like a startup hemorrhaging money (laughs) as all startups do, but it's fine. Um, Just like
2: everybody else.
1: Yeah, it's a rapid, it's rapidly developing innovative, updatable next-gen EVs as well as the breakthrough digital platforms and software. And I think, you know, not so much the EVs. I think when they talk about these subscription services, um, that's where they see the money are the digital platforms and software being developed by the Model E segment. Uh in Ford Pro, Farley calls it's uh, Farley Farley calls Ford Pro the company's quote secret weapon to help commercial customers lower the cost, total cost of vehicle ownership and transform their enterprises with a lineup of specialized gas, hybrid and electric vehicles and increasing attached rates for productivity services like prognostics uh, and telematics. So, is Ford Pro essentially like Cars as a surface.
0: What's secret about it? He, <laughs>
2: That's just what I was wondering. Take, hey, we got this really cool thing. Yeah. It's a secret. So let me tell you yeah. about it. So it's not a We're secret. a
0: publicly traded company, so I'm legally required to put it in this. Maybe it's a secret weapon
1: because but- just not enough people are paying for
2: it yet. <laughs> I I don't know. Um It does feel like a version 2.0 type of thing for all the features you get now, like yeah. an upgrade type deal. And again, I think they're just they're just over um extending on a lot of these service offerings that they're off, that they're putting out there.
1: Yeah. It's uh the car's free, man, for your fleet. So that way, low capital cost entry, but anytime you use it, we're gonna charge you.
0: It's just like what turnkey fleet management, basically? Is that what they're saying that they because w- it says uh productivity services like prognostics and telematics, so they wanna take they'll what will take care of all the maintenance and yeah. we'll take care Tell of that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, no, that's uh you know, we've seen models like that with uh machines that it's not machines as a service, but where you get the machine for free, and uh, basically you just pay every time there's uptime, mm-hmm. and then you pay based on production. So I don't know. Uh, interesting model. We'll see if it uh, we'll see if it goes anywhere. Ford models. Ford Model E's growth expectations include a production capacity run rate of two million EVs by the end of 2026. I found this particularly interesting because Ford sold 61,000 EVs last year. And that we've covered many times before, made it the second largest EV maker in the US behind Tesla. But now the company is aiming to make 360,000 EVs this year, which it's already struggling to do. Do you guys envision that it is going to be able to hit 2
2: million EVs within three years?
0: That's a, yeah, I mean, that's a tall order. That's a lot.
2: This is how they got in trouble the first time, okay? By overproducing and then not being able to charge what they needed to for their product because they needed to sell them. Yeah. This is this is a dangerous cycle that they're potentially running into if they actually do try to hit that number because yeah. that's that's 700% increase yeah. in 3 years. That's how that's you overproduce I, and yeah. undersell, and then you can't charge enough for your product because you have to
1: get it out the door. It does make sense, though, with the, hey, the car is free, but like we're going to charge you every time you start it.
0: But, well, but there's we too don't many know others. that that's their model, right? No, no, no. Okay. But I'm
1: trying to make sense of something that right.
0: doesn't
2: make sense otherwise to me. Yeah, yeah. Cars will never be free. I mean. Cars, trucks, SUVs, vehicles will never be free.
1: It's a changing world. Bikes are getting more expensive. Cars will be free. It'll be <laughs> a new world and dogs, <laughs> and robots.
0: I also want to see the day that you find a automaker lower the cost of their vehicle because they're going to assume you're going to buy features later. That's never going to happen. If it I happens, mean, I want you to call me that second.
1: Time stamp it right now in like... 10 years we'll call it 10 i think it'll happen in five but in 10 we'll, we'll circle back
0: i will be playing pickleball no i <laughs> not that old
1: <laughs> just like getting there right 10 years from now i'll be playing pickleball like it's still a work day like <laughs> your lunch has been four hours all right well let's uh before we move on to in case you missed it the stories, maybe not as popular on the websites, but still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward, we have another word from Adobe. Hi, I'm David Manti, and I want you to join me and John Burdett from Adobe to discuss practical tips, how to transform your digital sales in self-service. John, one thing that we're going to be talking about is how you can create these sales ironmen, augmented salespeople. Is this just a cheap ploy to tie in a Marvel tie, or is this a real thing that people could use? This is a real thing. This is automating your sales and service uh, so that your salespeople can go out and sell even more with automation having their back and not competition for it. It's it's allowing them to do more with the less that they always have in terms of time and and effort and energy. Very good. Plus then they can go home and tell their kids that they're an Iron Man. That they're Iron Man. (laughs) Excellent. Well, very much looking forward to it. Make sure to register at the link below and join myself and John Burdett for practical tips, how to transform your digital sales and self-service. We'll see you there. And we're back. And just a reminder that changing customer expectations and increasing cost and competitive pressures are forcing industrial manufacturers to rethink how they engage with buyers to grow revenue, improve profitability, and gain operational operational efficiencies. John Burdett from... D- Ver- <laughs> John and I. John's from Adobe. We recently sat down and chopped it up. Talked about how Uh, manufacturers should consider their commerce initiatives and what they should do to tie in their digital customer experience. You can watch it now. Hopefully I get through it a little bit easier than I got through that read. Now, before we jump into, in case you missed it, uh, uh, Sonny B., who's uh, watching us live, thank you very much for joining us, says the Tesla bot is a response to Agility's recent news. And all three of us are unfamiliar with Agility. I'm pretty sure, was Agility the one that was coming that was deploying out of the back of the Ford fleet. And like uh, it was that last mile concept where they would sure. deploy it out the back of the Ford and then, uh, or the commercial vehicle. Yeah, see, that makes more sense.
0: Use that Tesla.
1: And yeah. That take, looks much hey, less Tesla, creepy. Yeah, Tesla, buy agility and you're going to be light years, light years ahead. Um, oh, this is a jumping. Oh no, I thought it was going to be a jumping robot. But it's just extending like you'd extend, expect a robot to do so yeah uh producer alex thinks that uh it looks like he's stretching but uh no that's uh (laughs) it's an interesting it's an interesting robot we will look into it and cover it more on a segment in the future thank you very much for bringing that up to us now in case you missed it story's not as popular oh and the other one that i messed up uh jeff brought it to light that it wasn't fiat in the italian job it was the mini cooper yeah just a huge swing and a miss on my heart like uh you know, there is this it's a small car. It's a yeah. little, it's yeah. tiny, little, tiny little baby cars. Tiny mm-hmm. little baby cars. Neither of t- us are driving. Little baby cars. Yeah. You know what? We're like gonna tear out the seat and sit in the back so we can actually drive it. Anna, what's your in case you missed it this week? <laughs>
0: uh, I chose a story about Peloton, um, just because this company has seen so many ups and downs in the last couple of years. Um, they recently announced that they would be undergoing a significant rebrand. Um, So they're basically dumping their identity as a seller of luxury exercise bikes and equipment to um, becoming a technology and equipment for all company. So their chief marketing officer said in a statement on Tuesday that they're shifting perceptions from in-home to everywhere, Uh, fitness enthusiasts to people at all levels, exclusivity to inclusivity. Um, The company rolled out new pricing for tiered membership uh, it's lower prices. Um, they said that the app is now offering more free classes. Uh, I, when I saw this, I was like, I guess, I mean, so we, obviously you know, the history of Peloton, they had a huge, 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 like 18, 19, 20. Yeah. They sold a ton of bikes at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, that as things conditions started to ease that kind of aligned with some problems that they were having with recalls and some accidents that occurred with they had some quality problems um so they fell apart basically oh. so they were this darling they had a great you know share price and then suddenly they just tanked um they've been trying they fired their ceo they've been trying to get back on some solid footing since then um I don't know. Do you think this is enough to save it? Oof. Like lowering their prices to sell to everyone? Because I, to me, I think like one of the biggest things that it had going for it before was the high end designation. Um,
1: well, and the captive audience
0: and well, but like
1: legit, like literally captive audience.
0: Sure. Yes, for sure. They got a boost from that, but also, um, you know, without an identity uh, or a brand, I guess exercise equipment is a bit of a commodity. I mean, mm-hmm they almost did to me, it seems like they almost didn't have a choice here that they either like lower their price or don't survive because once you buy a bike, how long before you need a new one? You know, mm-hmm. it's not like a Louis Vuitton handbag where you might you buy need a new multi- one a season. Yeah. Like a multiple things for multiple occasions okay. is like, even with luxury vehicles there's sort of a cult factor there. And people are sort of gearheads about it. No one is like that about an exercise bike. So um, it's I, almost gone
1: the other way now where, It used to be when you went to somebody's house, the Peloton was like prominently displayed. And it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, you have a Peloton. What's it like? And now it's the exact opposite where it's like, yeah, that's my Peloton.
0: Well, and, you know, yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, how often are you going to replace that thing either? Like every 10 years? I don't know. So uh, I think they had to expand their market to survive. But does it work? I don't know. I was very interested to read the story. And now I'm even more interested to watch to see what happens because I just don't know if that's going to work or not.
1: When I saw the story, and then when I read the story, I just kind of got sad.
0: Because I know, it's sad. They're
1: based in Madison, I believe, or at least they still oh, have they a presence are. in Ma- Madison. Yeah, right off of Park Street. Or did they never move into that building? I uh, don't
0: <clears throat> think that's. True. Um,
1: but I knew that they had. They did have a presence here. Um, but to me, this just sort of seems like last ditch effort. Um, it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the part that did kind of turn my head a little bit was that they were opening up to potentially free classes because it was always something that I was not willing to pay a subscription service for. But I mean, come on, if I'm being honest, like if I could take one or two free Peloton classes a week, I'm going to be doing light years better. Um,
0: but I mean like, so are you going to buy a Peloton bike because they give you a free class? No. So but what gonna gain to be from that? I'm Nothing. going to be
1: appreciative. And in five weeks, yep. my final thought is going to be like, you know what? That one Peloton class was nice. It was way better than the free yoga in the park, so and I, that should be something.
0: That is something. That's
1: uh, of zero value.
0: So I uh, uncovered that the Peloton's headquarters is in New York City. What's and, the thing and in Madison then? In Madison, there is an apartment building called.
1: The, well, then why <laughs> the Peloton? Why is it branded Peloton? Like it, just, yeah. it was their logo.
0: I don't know. It's called okay.
1: It's just the Peloton residences. Yeah, it's for people. who- Did they get into real estate at
0: some point? People who love to ride you
1: need to have a peloton to live bikes. there yeah I
0: it's don't know. the
1: loudest apartment in all of madison well <laughs> swinging a big miss there you
0: nailed it though
1: i'm just crushing <laughs> it this week i mean i don't know if you can't drive past a building and see a logo on the side and just immediately assume it's a headquarters <laughs> i don't understand the world today jeff uh your bets on
2: peloton live in another two years I think if they were going to, excuse me, they were going to do this, they should have rolled it out under a different brand name. Uh, I think Peloton is kind of toxic right now. I think that's the biggest thing that they could do to help their company is to get away from that name, try to institute some new branding. Because although they had some horrible issues, quality issues with some of their products, it wasn't all of them. There were some products that Mm -hmm. were okay. Focus on the things that were working. And if you're going to go this route, which I do think is a good idea in terms of services, branded under a different name yeah. so that people don't feel awkward about having a Peloton app on their phone or whatever.
1: Just no relation to the company here. It is
2: just... Let it go, bud.
1: I know, but it's just, it's crazy. I can't believe no you can name else, something no that... No
2: one else is going to remember this if you let it go right now.
0: I'll remember. <laughs>
2: I know. Oh, I can't wait for this to come up really, over and over and, and over again. I was really just again. trying to help him feel better.
1: Mm, <laughs> the first time. That was the first... Alright, well... Jeff, what's your? In case you missed it this week,
2: I picked kind of a rough. I'm glad I'm not going last because this is this could be a bad one. I picked a story on uh, UPS strike looms in a world more reliant on delivery. So basically, the situation is UPS, which is a Teamsters union. Their contract expires July 31st of this year. Okay, and if as you can guess, these 350,000 members of working members of UPS. They feel like they did a lot during the pandemic, and it's time for UPS to pay up. UPS has seen a couple of incredible years of like $8 billion in shareholder returns, okay? Extremely profitable. And there's a lot of history here as well between the Teamsters slash UPS employees And UPS kind of actually goes back to 1997. That was the last time that UPS workers went on strike. They were on strike for 15 days. It cost UPS $600 million. Okay, that's 26 years ago. Yeah. All right. So you can imagine what that is now. UPS is also right now handling about one quarter of all um, shipments basically to commercial residents in the US right now. So if they do go on strike at the end of July or the end of yeah, end of July, August first, it's gonna have a huge impact on supply chain issues. We thought it was bad before. If they don't get this figured out, it's gonna be a big problem. UPS, the workers are extremely serious about this. Let's mm-hmm. put it this way. They even fired a guy who um, with the last name of Hoffa. Okay, it was James Hoffa was the head of their union. They fired they that fired guy because he was not aggressive enough. Oh man. Okay, so they are being very straightforward with UPS in terms of meeting their demands. Specifically, a lot of the things that they're looking for um, aren't crazy. Okay, they're looking for addressing, in addition to addressing part-time pay and what workers say is excessive overtime, the union wants to eliminate a contract provision that created two separate hierarchies of workers with different pay scales, hours, and benefits. Driver safety, particularly the lack of air conditioning and delivery trucks, is also in the mix. In addition, so what happened when they solved that 1997 strike? Basically, UPS said, hey, we're going to give you more money. Come back to work. We'll figure this out. The contract lapsed in 98. That's when the contract actually came to an end. UPS, as part of bringing everybody back, said, we're also going to create like 2,000 jobs. Mm. They didn't. Mm. UPS took a downturn in that point in time in the economy. They were down 4 or 5%. They never made those hires, but the workers were sort of tied into that contract. Okay? They remember this. 2018, the contract expired as well. Workers came. They were looking for more. They wanted to renegotiate the contract. But basically, there was some sort of legal issue in terms of the way things were carried out that they had to accept the previous contract basically without a vote. So they remembered that as well. It's five years later. The contract is up. There's a history of UPS and the Teamsters not working so great together. This could be huge. Mm -hmm. If these guys go on strike, if these men and women and with UPS go on strike, that's 350,000 delivery people. Mm -hmm. Plus, you're talking about the Teamsters Union. The Teamsters Union also has people represented in other delivery facets, other delivery industries. And if they get all those people on board striking for UPS workers' benefits, this this is a nightmare waiting to happen.
1: That sounds like it could be incredibly disruptive. Um, Anna, what have you heard about this potential UPS strike?
0: Well, um, it will be interesting to see what happens. Um, Another story that uh, I saw a month or two ago about UPS's chief rival FedEx was that um, FedEx is looking at potentially outsourcing all the drivers on its payroll and, And, you know, looking to contract workers for those roles.
1: Taking like the Amazon model?
0: Yeah, they think that it's going to boost their product or their profitability, which it, you know, likely would. Um, But the execution question is a big one. Um, And so, I don't know, you'll wonder with UPS, with that happening in the background and UPS looking at like, okay, do we also go in that direction? That you know, certainly is a possibility, but like, how would both of these massive companies in this time of extreme demand outsource all those workers at the same time? I don't see that being done. I don't think that's possible.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and what the Teamsters said, too, remember with all that was going on in California with the delivery people and the gig economy and how they're trying to get them treated more, less like employees and more like contractors? What the Teamsters is saying is a lot of those folks have joined the Teamsters. Sure. Yeah. So if you've got a lot of independent contractors that would fill these roles that are also part of the union, well, that takes you out at the knees there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, think of, I mean, big box stores have to be salivating right now. Well, they still need product delivered to them. I mean, they get stuff from UPS too. Yeah. I mean, not to the same extent that a regular consumer does. Yeah. I mean, Amazon's got to be freaking out about this. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, just day-to-day stuff. I mean, it's this could really have a huge impact if they don't get this figured out, or even if they're on strike for a week. Yeah, think about what that would mean.
0: Mm-hmm. And just
2: trying to catch up after a week.
1: Do you think this could be more disruptive than the rail strike that we just barely
2: averted? Yeah, yeah, without okay. a doubt. Okay, and it's interesting how these things are all coming to a head with some of the same issues. You know, they still haven't really figured out everything with the rail workers, right. In terms of sick pay and and getting time off and things like that. And you'd think, I mean, the teams. T- Teamsters aren't stupid. They're looking at that stuff, too, which is why I think they're going to be more adamant about getting it all right up front spelled out in that contract, as opposed to the railway folks who kind of came back without having everything figured out. They were kind of forced back, weren't they, by the administration? Yeah.
1: And I I mean, if this could potentially be as disruptive,
2: could that be possible, too? Well, you know what a fan I am of having government involved in private industry. So it could be but let's hope
1: not. Yeah. Uh, Jesse, who's watching us live. Always good to see you, Jesse, says our entire supply of apparel would be affected at my job and that would be terrible. Yes, it would be terrible, Jesse. Well, let's hope we can avert this strike, but
2: I mean, it doesn't sound good. Man, I think UPS has to pay.
1: Yeah. Just being real. All right. Well, my In Case You Missed It this week is innovative, but grim. Uh, A Dutch inventor is growing mushroom coffins. And I found this interesting for a number of reasons. But while it's true that we're all just going to become worm food in the end, the current state of body disposal often makes it difficult for like worms to ever find us. A Dutch inventor is now growing coffins with mycelium, a root structure of mushrooms and hemp fiber. Traditional wooden coffins can take decades to grow and years to break down in the soil, These mushroom versions biodegrade and deliver the remains to nature in about a month and a half. The company, which is called Loop Biotech, claims to have a solution for those wanting to live a full circle of life. At a press press event, the company's 29-year-old founder, Bob Hendricks, wore a shirt that read, I am compost, which is just a big swing, Bob. That is a big swing. I like it probably i like it too i ordered one mushrooms are the biggest recyclers on the planet i encourage everybody to watch fantastic fungi on netflix they also make an urn that can be this is loop biotech that also makes an urn that can be buried with a sapling sticking out of it so when the urn is broken down the ashes help give the tree life These coffins cost about $1,000 each. The urn is about $212. And I thought there was great potential for this because I think there is a huge gap when it comes to how bodies are disposed of with respect and with still servicing the planet. You know, some of the bodies still need to be like encased in concrete and then buried. I like solutions like this. I'm a big proponent of the um, where your body is buried with the tree and then essentially feeds the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that uh, didn't make a lot of sense to me was the urn because you know you can kind of just spread ashes by a tree and then you feed the tree. But the coffin uh, could really make an impact and could be very disruptive if the industry is receptive to it. Um, Anna, did you have a check uh, have a chance to check out mushroom coffins?
0: Um, yeah, I did. And I agree. I think this is cool. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, uniformity in what's av- available for people right now um, in the funeral industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of like really expensive options. Um, for, the low
1: end coffin is two grand.
0: Oh, I know. And then, you know, I think people have a very varied, um, uh, I guess, perspective on how they would want to, you know, be in in after they die, like where you would want to be and how, you know, a lot of people I don't think are down with like the thought of being in an expensive metal coffin. And, and, you know, it's cool that you can, if you, if you feel like strongly about the environment and, you know, that you could kind of go back into the earth and, and help grow something. So, yeah, yeah, I think well, it's cool.
1: Yeah, this is right up there with donating your organs and body to science, with continuing to kind of give back after you've passed on. Mm-hmm. I know that that could be sort of pie in the sky for some people that might think it's ridiculous, but again, Jeff, coffins range from like two thousand on the low end to five thousand at the high end, and I don't know. There's a, a claustrophobic part of me. Uh, the idea of this being buried in a coffin in a concrete tomb, you know, again. Again, it's just like, uh, you know, it's right up there with the uh, uh, the sinkhole fear, you know, of being buried alive. But I mean, if I'm buried in a mushroom, Man, I know. You
2: do overthink.
1: <laughs> yeah. Ow. Yeah. You got to do something. No, you don't. Yeah, you do.
2: You really don't. I just crochet and so think about this I stuff. So I think. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think this is cool. I think it, it brings a different dynamic to what can be a very difficult time or some difficult decisions. So, if somebody makes this, especially if they make the specification beforehand, you know, mm-hmm. and say, this is what I want to do, I, I think it's cool. I think anytime we can put more natural stuff into the ground, that's, that's better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of, I will
1: admit that some of the photos of their facility are unsettling. You know, just a bunch of pauper pods hanging hey, out on shelves. Back in the
2: day, Anna, didn't you do a cover story for Info Magazine on a um, coffin manufacturing facility?
0: I did. uh, Batesville Casket in Batesville, Tennessee, Indiana. Uh, Indiana. In a Batesville. Um, Yeah. They had a very interesting um, uh, production facility, and I got to see it. And they're just like very... frank and straightforward about the market conditions and you know so it's weird because they do better when more people die yeah <laughs> so it was like odd to hear them explain it but at the same time it's reality right yeah.
1: no it is uh i mean a person that i went to high school with his father ran a funeral home he took over the funeral home when he talked to him about running a funeral home he says people are always going to die man true and it's just like, that is a grim reality that you live in every day where I choose to be ignorant of it. Just like, you know what? We're all living forever. It's going to be great. All right. Well. Until the robots come. Until the robots come and bury us in mushroom coffins because they're still going to need us to sustain the planet. <gasps> Our final thoughts before we get out of here. Anna, what's your final thought?
0: Uh, oof. Final thought.
1: It's gonna be Memorial Day barbecue. Have yeah, a good time. What's we'll yeah, your family? Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. We're gonna have um, some friends over this weekend, which will be fun. Um, my kids are super amped up. My daughter is invited to her like nine millionth birthday party of the year, so uh, I get to go to the jumping place.
1: Yeah, <laughs> again, it's crazy how everyone in that class has a birthday and none of them are on the same day.
0: Every every other weekend there's a birthday. I, um, I like it. Also. I'm so glad that she has so many wonderful friends, and I actually love – I know some parents, like, hate going to kids' birthday parties, but I actually love it because mm. everyone is just having a freaking blast, and it's just – it's adorable. So
1: No, agreed. I like it, too. It, uh, like, uh, all the parents are sort of hanging out, mm-hmm. having the half conversations while standing at the ready – to address any sort of bleeding right, fractures, yeah. you know, yep. especially at those jumping places,
0: always at the jumping place, right?
1: You, you know, you have the small talk while you're all filling out the <laughs> waiver beforehand. Um, <laughs> uh, no, my, uh, my final thought is, yeah, looking forward to the holiday weekend. Um, if you're watching us live, hope you really have a chance to enjoy it and decompress. If you're wa- listening to us Monday, like most people do, hope you had a great time. Um, also, happy birthday to uh, loyal listener, Seth. I hope you have a chance to get out and, you know, celebrate a bit with the family. And uh, I'd like to leave you with this, if I can. Uh, the first law is that a robot shall not harm a human or by inaction allow a human to come to harm. The second law is that a robot shall obey any instruction given to it by a human. And the third law is that a robot shall avoid
2: actions or situations that could cause it to come to harm itself. Jeff? So what if it feels the third law is the most important and that by ignoring the first two laws, mm. it's following the third law because of the its,
0: old wish for more wishes law of yep. its
1: binary thinking, the first law will mm. is more important but with artificial intelligence. That's the problem. It,
2: don't we teach it to
1: no? because artificial intelligence is just a query, man. So artificial intelligence, they just say, so what's the best for the survivability of the
2: planet? There is such a big part of me that wants to keep messing with you on this. But I'll I feel go like, all day. I'll I go feel all like we need to move forward. Yeah, I, I, don't think, think, so. I think moving on. I
1: don't think so. Here, just healthy. hit the button again. New podcast. Let's go. No. <laughs> Episode 121. No, what are your plans for this weekend, Jeff?
2: Um, I'm actually excited. I got a lot of good stuff going on. Definitely going to be outside doing some grilling, drinking some beer. So yeah. it should be good. Yeah. Um, the closing thought was, you know, you guys mentioned it. I've been gone the last couple of weeks. I was at a couple of different conferences, one for a vendor of ours that we use internally here, another was for a company, Epicor, uh, software that we work with. And the thing that was, there's a couple of things that was unique or was similar to both of them. Um, one was that there's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence and the effect that it's going to have on the business world, and mm-hmm. different applications for it, which I think are very intriguing and should be interesting, and we'll be talking more about that, I'm sure. The other was both had very prominent speakers. The one was because it was more of a, um, a media type, you know, with tools that we use in terms for our email and our marketing and our content and all that kind of stuff. It was a media focused uh, conference. And they had a very prominent um, individual from a media company that everyone would recognize up there. And this individual was given an interview and they were talking back and forth. And her focus was really on promoting what she was doing, her brand. Mm. And as a result, it didn't get real high marks. Oh, she yeah. didn't come off very well. It just was not a good presentation. I don't think it helped the sponsor of the of the conference. I don't think it helped her or her brand. Hmm. Yeah. Okay? It was very disappointing. Did So she came off like, and I'm thinking I can guess who it is, but did she come off like selfish or just promotional Just very self-promoting. Oh, okay. And there was a lot of very interesting insights she could have added to the audience in terms of how to better run your business, certain things that they come across, transitioning from print and digital and all those types of things. That was never part of it because, again, her focus was on her, yeah. to be very honest. Yeah. Going to the Epicor conference, one of the best speakers I've ever heard was Billy Bean. Oh, For those okay. who don't know, he was general manager of uh, the Oakland A's. He's the money ball guy, he was played by Brad Pitt in the movie made a lot of good jokes about how they nailed the casting there and all that. (laughs) But when he got up there and he spoke about his experiences and basically using analytics to run his baseball team and how they were constantly evolving and talking about it, he wasn't just talking about himself to promote himself. He was talking about subject matter that anybody who works with any type of data could take away and apply to their job. Mm -hmm. He made it applicable to the audience. It wasn't just about his hubris and what he had done and, hey, look at me. It was, this is what I did to be successful, and here's how this could also apply to you. And you just had two individuals, both very prominent, well known, who took just polarizing approaches to their presentation. And as a result, one really bettered their brand or their image, mm-hmm. and one did the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just, it was very interesting. And I don't know how much any of us or anybody else out there has an opportunity to do that by getting in front of people, but just making that connection to the audience as opposed to just promoting yourself. I mean, it makes a huge difference, you know, yeah. being on the other end of that. It was, sure. was kind of yeah. interesting. Uh, take why away. you're there, right? Yeah.
0: I think that applies to you to like, you know, people are doing a lot of not just public speaking, but like content generation for yeah. their companies and just making sure that you're coming at that from a vantage point of being a subject matter expert, providing some sort of educational takeaway and not just saying like, this is why we do this the best. Yeah. Nobody gains anything from that. So,
1: in telling a story people want to hear. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David or Anna at IEN.com with email, the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. Make sure you get it delivered to your inbox first. Subscribe to us on YouTube at IEN Magazine. And if you're on YouTube, give us a thumbs up right now. We'll pause for it. Thank you. All right. Uh, but for Jeff Frankie and Anna Wells, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing Podcast. We'll see you next week.